welcome to Deeper, a podcast of Wollongong Baptist Church. The podcast aims to follow the sermon series and to take our congregation deeper into God's Word. Hello, you're listening to Sarah Leffley and I'm here with Pastor Rod Bailey. How are you today, Rod? I'm good. I'm enjoying this warm winter weather. Yeah, we were just talking about how um, unseasonal it's been, but it's been delightful. Fabulous. Yeah. yeah no, people are out and about doing all kinds of things. It feels like spring. Yeah, but it sounds like you're heading into colder weather uh, next week. Mm. All our pastors are off on a big journey. Where are you going? That's right. All the staff team going up to Katoomba. Um, we're going to the Oxygen Conference, as it's called. Um, they've run this uh, Katoomba Christian Conventions every three or four years for the last decade or so. And it's just for gospel ministry workers. And there'll be, I don't know, they usually have like a thousand people or more. Wow. So, um, yeah, I'm not quite sure the numbers, but it'll be pretty packed up at Katoomba. With, um, and there'll be lots of catching up, I think, lots of networking. Great. And why, why Oxygen? Do you know why they call it that? I think to revive us, the whole sort of theme oh, is, you know, we need to be, you know, encouraged to keep going. Something as essential as oxygen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Come out, take a deep breath, go back to what you're doing. Yeah, great. Yeah. Sounds hard and good. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be busy. They just pack it. But yeah, um, yeah be lots of good stuff. Well, we'll look forward to when you come back and tell us all the great things you've taken away from it and the people you've met. Um, I'm pretty eager to start today. I'm feeling refreshed being back in Axe. Are you feeling Similarly? Yeah, I think Acts is exciting. There's so much stuff happening. You know, the church is expanding. People are becoming believers. Um, it's just action-packed book. So, yeah, I think this term and as we go into next term, um, yeah, this will be great uh, running through from Acts 9 right through to the end of 28. Excellent. Well, let's get started then. The first thing I noticed as you were um, preaching on Sunday was the number of place names that were mentioned, you know, Damascus and Tarsus. Uh, is that just to give, you know, truthfulness to the story or is there more to it? Is there something significant about these places? Yeah, well, I think they are important places and it, it does help. Like the geography seems a bit strange to us because we're just not used to that uh, area of the world, perhaps. Um, but yeah, it is important in different ways. Uh, we see there's a lot of focus on Damascus to begin with because that's where Saul has travelled. And But it is a long way north. Like, that's the capital of Syria and it's still an important city today. Uh, but that's 240 kilometres uh, north of Jerusalem. And that would take them about a week to get there travelling in that day. So that was a substantial journey, which just goes to the point I was... And he was going to bring the prisoners all the way back to Jerusalem? Drag them all the way back. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know what you do. March down Roman roads for 240k. It's... uh, yeah. Sounds like a sentence enough to me. <laughs> exactly. You know, they won't need jail by no. then. They won't make it. Uh, I mean, it points to the, you know, the zeal of Saul, which is what I was saying on Sunday, that, mm. you know, to go to such extreme lengths, like, I don't know, that'd be like us, um, you know, walking all the way to Sydney or whatever, all the way to Newcastle and trying to get people. And, you know, this is huge distances in that day. Um, but it tells you something about Damascus as well. Like it was a crucial city. It was kind of a, a trade city, even though it was inland. Um, and there were some big trade cities on the Mediterranean coast as well, which also get mentioned in this chapter. Um, it was on the main sort of trade route inland. And so, yeah, a lot of things expanded out through there into the Gentile world. And I, I guess Saul and others knew that if Christianity really flourished there, then they'd lose control of this thing right. and it'd just be out into the Roman Empire. So I think there's something of that going on. Um, tells you the, the effort he's gone to, the importance of the city. But I think also, um, 
Yeah, he's he's a guy that has come from, uh, you know, he's born in what we call Turkey today in Cilicia. Um, so Tarsus, the city that's also mentioned in the chapter, that's where he's born. Um, but it seems like he grew up in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem's obviously the capital of the Jewish people and had been for centuries. Um, but here's somebody who came from quite some distance mm. to be trained up under a leading Pharisee in Gamaliel and to be this expert Pharisee in the law. Um, so for him, he would have had a wider worldview than many. And so it probably makes sense that he becomes, you know, the apostle to the Gentiles who travels all around the Roman world because he'd done some of that already in yeah. his life. Um, um, he's going to, after this period, we'll see from um, Acts 11 in a couple of weeks, he'll sort of be based in Antioch, which is another big city to the north, Gentile city. So um, none of this seems to phase Paul at all. He just sort of travels around everywhere. But for a lot of people in that day, you never went beyond you know 10 or 20K from where you were born. For um, sure. You know, Jesus doesn't really go outside of Israel except for the smallest period in the Samaritan country. Whereas Paul sort of gallivanting all around the Roman Empire, so um, so Tarsus is interesting. So yeah, he he's in Damascus, gets in trouble eventually after he's converted there, ends up down in Jerusalem. A bit of a struggle there as well. There's more opposition. The Christians take him to Caesarea, which was the capital of Judea for the Romans. They just built that. Herod the Great built it on the coast. So he goes to the coast, and then they send him on a boat from Caesarea across the Mediterranean Sea to what we would call southern Turkey, to his home town of Tarsus. So yeah, there's a bit of move, movement in this chapter. And by the end of the chapter, you've got Peter, who's gone to uh, Lydda and Joppa, which are, again, sort of places on the coast um, just south of Caesarea. So they're like 50 kilometers from um, Jerusalem on the coast, and they're important places today. Like That's um, really what we know as Jaffa and Tel Aviv and these uh, spots along the Mediterranean coast today. But they're... They've had people living in those places since before wow. the Roman times. I'm really struck by, um, I don't know what the word is, maybe it's God's patience, the fact that he used this unusual experience of, of Saul being someone who had travelled and didn't know the world and then thought, well, well, he already planned, I guess, that's the guy. He's <laughs> that's the guy. just incredible that he would have would have been an awful weight. <laughs> that's all I can think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I also am wondering about this perspective that Saul and the other religious leaders had that the Christians in their blasphemy or their supposed blasphemy were worthy of the death sentence. Mm. You said that came from old the Old Testament. Do you have a reference for that so we can get a better picture? Yeah, so in Deuteronomy 13, there's a whole chapter about um, prophets, dreamers, even your own family members, anybody basically who might advocate or worship another god um, that they be seen as a false teacher, a false prophet, and they should incur the death penalty by stoning. Mm. Um, so that was what they did with Stephen, right? In Acts 7, here is somebody that's teaching in the Jewish viewpoint uh, wrong things, claiming that this Jesus is the Messiah, which they rejected, and therefore you're elevating Jesus. He was just a man. You're making him God. You're talking about worshipping him. This is all wrong. Anyone that talks this way is confusing Jewish yeah. believers, trying to drag them away from the Old Testament faith, and so they're worthy of death. So um, Deuteronomy 17 and 18 say similar things. There's a lot actually in the first five books in the law about these kind of things because there was this great fear from, uh, I guess, in the law that the Israelites would turn away to idolatrous worship. Yes. But then they applied this same thinking to Christians as they came 
you know, to be considered this new sect by the Jews. Is there a reason then that Christians didn't use that same Old Testament command against the Jews who, in denying Christ, are blaspheming? Yeah, well, yes, basically Jesus, their Lord, (laughs) (laughs) saying otherwise, like, you know, uh, love your enemies, you know, Sermon on the Mount, which we looked at um, recently. Um, Yes, and turn the other cheek to be anyone that's persecuting you to not respond. And so the Christian attitude was very different to what Jews felt like they could legitimately do because of God's teaching in the Old Testament law. Admittedly, um, things have not always followed that um, teaching of Jesus in subsequent centuries. So, you know, we get to the Crusades and the Catholic Church has sort of gone crazy there trying to take back Jerusalem and lots of life is lost in the Muslim world because of it. And then you get to the Reformation and you get Catholics killing Protestants and Protestants killing Catholics. And, you know, even the great uh, John Calvin, who's, you know, considered one of the best teachers still um, from the Protestant tradition, I mean, he he had a real problem with false teachers. There's a classic case of this uh, Spanish background guy, Miguel Savitas, who comes to Geneva, and he had flagged that he was coming and had already put out his teachings, which were quite false and uh, unhelpful, didn't view Jesus as fully God and a bunch of things. And so Calvin actually warned him, don't come to Geneva mm-hmm. because we have this strict policy here and we will banish you or we'll put potentially you would face death penalty. He goes anyway, starts spruiking his ideas in Geneva, and is killed. Um, A decision that's made by the local Christian council, not just Calvin. But, yeah, we sort of think, you know, why were they doing this kind of thing? But in their mind, yeah, it was so dangerous, these false views that could lead lots of people astray. And I guess the Jews applied that same kind of thinking in the first century. But that's not what Jesus taught us to do in response. That's tricky then because I, you know, obviously what Jesus teaches us to do is the right thing to do, but you don't want to then say the words that that God said in those commands are valueless or redundant. So how do you still hold the value of the Old Testament words there but uphold Jesus' new command? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, we always got to understand the Old Testament through the the grid of the gospel Mm. and Jesus' teaching. So I think as we see some of those laws in the Old Testament, what we see is a principle that idolatry is wrong, that God is a jealous God, and that false worship is an abomination before Mm. him. So Christians should have the same view, which is why we're quite clear about rejecting what we think is wrong teaching today, either within the Christian church or outside of it. It's just then what do you do in terms of... um, next steps Um, and so yeah this idea of pursuing people to the point of death is um, it's not so much I guess overturned but really um, reinterpreted or understood through Jesus as being well that that related to uh, God's protection and the sanctity of his Old Testament Old Covenant people Mm -hmm. Israel that was surrounded by pagan nations but now as Christians in a mixed up Gentile world, um, you know, that is not to be the response, Jesus says. Um, You know, there's still right and wrong. These are still important principles, but our response doesn't have to be about capital punishment. That's wonderful. Thank you. So, so clear. Yes, I do find a real tension there. And it's nice to know that we can look at principles and still uphold what Jesus wants of us. That's really wonderful. Thank you. you talked about Jeffrey Dahmer. That was just fascinating. But I've got to confess, I was not at all comfortable with the idea of sitting with Jeffrey Dahmer in heaven, mm. you know, passing him the salt at the banquet. That's sort of, it's just, it made me feel really uneasy. Mm. 
but my head knows that that's not a right response. Mm-hmm. How do I get my my heart to be at the same place as my head? Yeah, well, let me say I share the same um, discomfort, and, mm. and that's why I share the story, because I think we test our theology by looking at the extreme outliers yes. uh, sometimes to help us see well, whether we've really understood the extent of God's grace. But, yeah, look, I think it's a really good question. Um, so my way of thinking about this involves three steps. I think there are lots of doctrines you could think about to help you. But I think, firstly, you've got to think about uh, the doctrine of sin, the sinfulness of our sin. Um, and so we, we're either convinced um, that humanity is basically good, which is our secular humanistic yes. view, or we have the biblical view, which actually says that humanity is totally depraved and that sin is actually a power. Um, you know, it's an inherent condition. It's part of our fallen nature. Uh, we're all sinners. And, you know, even the least sin is a great offense before a holy God who sets a perfect standard and measures us against that, does not measure us against those around us, as our society tends to do mm. today. Um and I think we struggle with that because we're used to grading sins. You know, our law system grades sins, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, we, we consider a murderer uh, to be somebody that has 20 years to life or something like that in our legal system. But if somebody, I don't know, steals something from a shop, then, you know, it's going to be a lesser thing. And so, but the Old Testament does that as well. There's a, there is a grading or a recognition that some things have greater impact and should be. But there's never a point in God's word where we say, oh, well, the other one doesn't count or yeah. it's not really a sin or that somehow God doesn't care about that. Uh, all sin is sin. So I think, firstly, we've got to come to grips with that. Um, and I think our our society today does tom- sometimes have Christians downplaying sin yes. in, in their own thinking. So we'll talk about ignorance or it's just an error or a mistake. Um, but the Bible tends to words use words like rebellion, treachery, oh, wow. perversion, abomination, transgression. These are much stronger terms. And so we, we need to feel the weight of that um, and that, you know, sin is not just the things I do wrong and then I decide whether I think they're bad or not. But it's ultimately a hard attitude where I'm not allowing God to be God and to sit on his throne. I'm making decisions and I'm disobedient to his word because I've decided I know better or I'm going to reject it, um, what he's taught. So, uh, yeah, I think that's step one. We've really got to think over our doctrine of sin. Um, But then secondly, we've really got to be clear on our doctrine of repentance. I think part of our struggle when we think about somebody who's done... Uh, evil things like Jeffrey Dahmer is that we don't believe that they could possibly be repentant. Yeah. How could they have done those things and then there be any change and they really be sorry? Um, so we have to be clear to avoid a sense of cheapening God's grace. That's correct. But true repentance is a godly sorrow um, for one's sin together with a resolution to turn away from it once and for all. I think we fear that the person just has regret because there are now consequences for their actions. And so any remorse or regret is just uh, selfish sadness for themselves. They're not really wanting to change. Um, Of course, the problem is we don't know a person's heart. Only God does. So we can look on and say, oh, I'm not sure this person's fully repentant. You know, parents can do this with their children at times, right? I'm not quite sure whether they understood this. And that may or may not be true. But in the end, we don't know what's going on in their head or their heart. And so the danger is we take God's place in terms of judgment. And I decide, no, I don't think Jeffrey Dahmer or people of his ilk 
can be uh, properly repentant and therefore I don't think he's really understood his sin and therefore God hasn't forgiven him. You know, I'm, tr- I'm trying to justify what is my own judgment to begin with, yeah. you know. So we've got to be really careful about that. And that finally, I guess, step three for me is then, well, we've really got to marvel at God's grace. We, we have to think again, like, it really is undeserved. It really is unmerited. There is nothing. Otherwise, we end up in this position where we think, polite middle-class people are the people that get saved <laughs> or something you know i think you yeah. know and, and these extreme terrible people they, they can't be part yeah. of god's you know eternal people um so we're all deserving of hell uh and we don't always get a chance to show fruit like does the thief on the cross get to show the fruit of repentance mm. in his life because we say well i want to see the fruit of repentance the bible talks about this yes it does but does everybody have the opportunity? No, they don't. Mm. You know, how can Jesus say to the thief, "Today you'll be in paradise with me"? We haven't seen any track record, Jesus. Yeah. You know, he's only said a few words. And yet, to I'm you. not bothered by the thief on the cross, and it's like you say, because we've got this hierarchy of sins. I'm like, oh, what's a bit of stealing, you know, compared mm-hmm. to murder? Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's terrible. It's all sin. Yes. So I think this is our struggle. And, you know, I feel that as well. And that's why I used it, because I think it does like, oh, you know, have I really come Mm. to terms with the extent of God's mercy, his grace to people? Because if I haven't for them, then maybe I haven't appreciated how much I needed it. I think somehow I deserved it. Yeah. God's really given me this because I'm good, Um, you know, which is just completely wrong thinking and not what the Bible tells me is the truth about myself. Yeah, I like what you said about standing in in the place of God's judgment. I think you've used, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was you, you used the phrase once of usurping God's throne. And I realize that's what I'm constantly doing. And that in itself is what sin is. And mm-hmm. so while I'm sitting there on God's throne, judging someone else's sin, I'm sinning in that very moment. It's just such a dreadful cycle that I seem to be stuck in at the moment. Um but also, I thought for a minute, oh, but, you know, has justice been done mm-hmm. for Jeffrey Dahmer? You know, he did such horrendous things, and mm-hmm. now he's in eternal glory. Mm. And then I thought, oh, well, justice is done, but it was done to Jesus. Mm-hmm. That really amplified for me just how huge Jesus' sacrifice was. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's not just Jeffrey Dahmer's justice, but the justice I deserve too, yeah. No, I think that's great. It should bring us back to the cross. Mm. Yeah. Such a wonderful reminder. I loved that example. I was, it was jarring. I sat there and I was, I was looking at people thinking like, is anyone else bothered by this? I'm bothered by this. <laughs> but it was great. It's, I've been thinking about it all week. Um, the next question is about... Saul's reaction after his conversion, he just immediately starts preaching. Mm. I know he's got this great background knowledge of, you know, Old Testament things, being, you know, a Jewish zealot. Mm. But um, how does he know about Christ the Messiah? How does he know what to say there? Mm. He just seems so equipped so quickly. Yeah, and I think there are a couple of things in the text that help us with that, which I didn't really bring out on um, Sunday. So we're told at the end of verse 19 that Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and Mm. that's before he starts preaching in verse 20. So there is a little gap there, several days, days. I don't know. know, (laughs) It's not Bible college. No, (laughs) that's right. Obviously, there's been some instruction in those days. They've been chatting, praying with him. Um, Maybe that's given him a little bit of a pause and reorient himself and think, okay, well, I know all the passages about the Messiah and what's supposed to happen. So if Jesus is that, well, mm. then I can 
you know, put those things together now. Um, it's all surmising, obviously, but there is a little bit of a gap there before he starts preaching in verse 20. I think the other thing that tricks us too is it seems like he's only preaching for a short while in Damascus. I think when we read um, the passage, we think, oh, he just kept preaching in Damascus for, who knows, weeks, months, and then there's a problem, then he goes to Jerusalem, keeps preaching. But there's actually a time gap um, built into this, and we only know about it because of the rest of Scripture um, bringing that clear to us. So his initial teaching was paused. There's a pause between verse 22 and verse 23 oh. of perhaps three years. Okay. Uh, there's this missing... I thought this was no, a matter of days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so there's this initial preaching in Damascus, but then um, he disappears, uh, we're told elsewhere by him in Galatians 1, verses 17 and 18. He goes to Arabia for three years. Um, so Arabia, well, what was called that region, almost touches down to Damascus. So it doesn't mean he had to go much further, actually. He probably just went to another city a little bit further north from mm. Damascus. Um, but, yeah, there's this period there where he obviously had a lot of time to reflect on Scripture um, and to solidify his thinking. And he does talk a number of times about the theology has um, has come from Jesus directly. So people think, well, maybe, you know, he had further vision or understanding from Christ in that time. And so he doesn't see himself as, oh, well, I went and collected and learnt from the others what they taught, and then I went and did that and just copied Peter. He's sort of, no, I got independently revelation, not just as Jesus appeared on the Damascus Road, but in what followed in that um, intermediate period. So, yeah, there's a bunch of things there that are going on, so it all just sort of gets thrown together quickly in this chapter and, yeah, leaves you begging these questions. Um, how does he do these things? So I think he has enough, obviously, with all his background to teach for a short period. Yeah. Then he disappears. He comes back a more formed thing. And so then it seems he comes back from Arabia to Damascus. Then there's persecution. Then he gets lowered out by a basket out of the city then goes to Jerusalem. So right. when he goes to Jerusalem, he's had three years of thinking and and two spots of ministry in Damascus. That makes me feel a little bit better about it. I just remember being told to do my first youth group talk and it took me weeks to write and I still wasn't happy with it because I thought, I don't know anything. What am I doing up here? Yeah. Yep. But again, I probably shouldn't doubt the work of the Holy Spirit <laughs> in Saul, especially after such a miraculous conversion. Yeah, yeah. Um, also things that are immediate – Ananias baptizes Saul on the spot after mm -hmm. his repentance. Mm -hmm. um, we don't do that very often, even though that does seem to be quite a biblical pattern. Yes. Should we do that faster and celebrate quicker instead of trying to be sure that people are repentant? Yes, I, I think we should. Um, we actually talk about it a lot in our baptism course, and there's a, uh, an anomaly. Like, why are we saying you have a course or we, mm. we check people out and then we're wanting to speed it up, as it were, or to be moving quickly? Um, yeah, we don't see any tests or courses or anything like that in the New Testament. It just follows straight away, sometimes the same day. Like Pentecost, Acts 2, Peter preaches a sermon, 3,000 people respond and get baptized yeah. that afternoon. How much do they understand of the gospel at that point? Probably far less than every single person that gets baptized today. Yeah. And so, yeah, are we um, too particular? I guess it comes out of a right motive. We're wanting people to be clear about what they're doing. We don't want people to just go through the motions and get baptized because somebody else wants them to or they've completely misunderstood what it represents. And so we're trying to check that for their own sake and their walk with the Lord because if they 
go and get baptized and don't understand it and then walk away from their faith five minutes later and be like, what, what did all that mean? Why did the church allow me to be baptized? I wasn't even clearly a Christian. So we don't want that situation. Um, also, we don't want um, a testimony like that to other believers or people that are considering baptism mm-hmm. and thinking, I'm not even sure this person's clear about the gospel and yet they're up there giving their testimony and getting baptized. Like That sends a wrong message. So I think it's that concern that, causes most churches today to slow things down a little bit and just check but really i don't want people to you know become a believer and then think they'll get baptized 10 or 20 years later like we really do want to move on it it's just a package in the new testament it happens immediately following their belief um what is required there are no prerequisites except for true repentance and faith so yeah i think we should mimic the new testament pattern more closely uh, it's a good reminder that the motive is care for the person being baptised because I think sometimes my need to see that repentance is real is actually a protection for myself. It's not necessarily a good motive. It's like I don't want to be let down when they mm-hmm. they aren't truly repentant later. Yes. So that's a helpful thing for me to reflect on personally. Um, verse 16, I it reads almost a bit vengeful or vindictive by God, like he's trying to get Saul back for all of the persecution he's done. Is that the case, or is it more a general comment about what happens to Christians as Christ is proclaimed? Yeah, well, for listeners, I mean, verse 16 says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And No, this is not um, the Lord being vengeful or vindictive, although it, it sounds hard. You know, he's the chosen instrument in the previous verse 15, but then he's going to be shown yeah. how he suffer. Um, but I think it's just the result of being an apostle. Like We have to think about... Um, the original 12 disciples that then become the apostles or sent ones, like all of them die terrible deaths, a lot of them crucified and this, that and the other, beheaded in the case of um, James, the brother of John, really early on under Herod, all except for perhaps, you know, the apostle John who is exiled to the Isle of Patmos. But, you know, like none of them had uh, great experiences. And Paul's not alone in this. I think if you were going to be a leader in the first century, um, yeah, there was a lot of difficulty you could be a deacon like Stephen mm. and and face great persecution. So I, I think there's a sense in which uh, this was just par for the course, uh, particularly at that time as they were sort of um, breaking away, as it were, from the Jewish roots of the faith and saying, no, Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all this Old Testament law, and finding Jewish brothers and sisters who just rejected that altogether and were quite angry with them. Um, and then to have the Roman persecution that came because it kept spreading um i think it was tertullian the famous uh father in the early period of the church that said that you know the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church like uh, you know christianity expanded so quickly in the first Mm. three centuries in the roman empire because so many of them suffered but they were willing to go to their death uh, because of their faith in jesus and so you know you get to 325 a.d and constantine says christianity is the official religion of the roman (laughs) empire like how did that happen um so there was a lot of suffering in that period, um, but yes, I, so I don't think Paul's exceptional, but he certainly faces a lot in his time, and, and as I mentioned on Sundays, eventually executed, we think, in AD 64. Um, thinking more about Saul then, well, I, I think it's verse 22 talks about him growing powerful, mm. um, and I think it's in reference to his preaching about mm. Jesus. Mm. Um, what does it mean by growing powerful? Yeah, I think... Um, 
the idea there just before that talks about um, the Holy Spirit being given to him. It's through Ananias and laying on of his hands. He receives his sight again and he's given the spirit. Ananias is just the vehicle. I mean, it's God pouring out his spirit on Saul. But then this growing more powerful is really um, the word power or dunamis is usually used in relation to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Uh And so uh, the empowering is God's empowering through the work of the Spirit. So for him to become more and more powerful, I think in the context because he's teaching about the the Christ, um, it's the Holy Spirit enabling him to teach with such clarity and maybe forcefulness and to put things together that are really confounding the Jews because he's using the Old Testament scriptures and saying, oh, this all comes together in Jesus. Um, And so I think that's the Spirit's work enabling him um, to preach God's word clearly. So I think it's... It comes back to that earlier question about how did he know so much so quickly? Yes. Or, you know, there's an ongoing process. There's that revelation, even. yeah. Mm. So I think that's what is being spoken about there. Um, and I think John Stott, helpfully in his commentary on this, um, talks about uh, that process and really need to link that back to the couple of verses beforehand and the gift of the Spirit. Yeah. I realize I did skip over a question, but I think we can. it kind of links in here. Mm. As this happens and he grows more powerful, mm. Also, that persecution increases at the same time. And you were saying, you know, Christianity was born on the blood of the martyrs. Mm. Is that still the case for us? If if we preach more vigorously, Mm. will persecution increase for us too? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that's been the witness of Scripture, not just what we've seen back down through history in the last 2,000 years. Um, so, you know, 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Mm. That's everyone, and that's will. <laughs> and, you know, there's no ifs or buts there. Yeah. Um, you know, the New Testament's full of this. Uh, 1 Peter 4, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Like, don't be surprised. Um but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. This is just what it means to follow Jesus. But we, yeah, in our day of comfort, um, just don't like those words or don't feel they apply to us more directly. Um, but we just have to think that even in recent history, you know, Christians have suffered greatly. I mean, Bonhoeffer, the famous German theologian, you know, suffering under the Nazis in World War II, said suffering is the badge of true discipleship. If you're not suffering, are you a disciple? Mm. Um, which are challenging statements. Um, but, yeah, I think partly we don't perhaps face the pushback we would today in a society that is very anti-Christian at times because we keep our head down yes. under the parapet because we don't want yeah, that I'm reaction. Yeah, very guilty, yeah. Uh, another story that was jarring that I think you told um, was a, a story of a family that was buried alive singing Amazing Grace. And mm. I think about it all the time as being one of those really contrasting, jarring stories that I kind of use as a test of my faith. Like, would I be buried alive for Christ? And mm. I've had a tough time saying yes. Mm. I really pray that I would, but mm. I have a tough time saying yes because I just haven't had to face the persecution here. Yeah, and I don't think we know how we'll respond until we're in that moment. For I think sure. God enables his people in those. Yeah. Yes. moments. Um, so there is a danger that we stick them on a pedestal and think that they could do it and I'm not that person. No. But we, we don't know, I guess, until we're in that moment. For sure. Um, 
Ananias and Barnabas seem quite different characters, but they're both used by God. You know, Ananias needs a direct instruction to go and seek out Saul. Barnabas goes, I joked in my Bible study, like a Labrador to go fetch, <laughs> go fetch Saul. He's really excited to bring him in. Mm-hmm. Um, is one response better than the other? Are we all supposed to be encouraging like Barnabas or is he... Has he got something special? Is that a special gift? Yeah, I mean, obviously the original um, believer saw something unique in Barnabas, and that's why they gave him this name, the title meaning son of encouragement. But I don't think he's unique. Like, I think these are things that all Christians should be at some level. Mm-hmm. And and I think to be fair to Ananias, he was the first one to sort of, you know, go and greet Saul. And he does lay his hands on him and say, brother Saul. Yeah. I mean, that's that's uh, his first words from a Christian our acceptance of somebody that was, you know, trying to round them up. So I think Ananias is gracious, um, but, yeah, and Barnabas then comes on the back of that. He sees what happens at Damascus, and so he's got a track record and can say to the others, oh, no, I've seen this, Saul. Mm. But even so, um, yes, I think Barnabas is a fantastic example, and I think there's an urgent need for more modern-day Ananiases and Barnabases, you know, who who overcome their scruples, who overcome their fears, who... Um, are inclusive, they don't worry about hesitating, but they just befriend the new person, they include them in the life of the church, in their Bible study, whatever it might be. You know, that kind of welcome. Well, I mean, it was life-changing in Saul's case. I mean, God had changed his life, but his inclusion in the church was important. Would he have been the missionary that he then became if they all rejected him and say, no, I'm sorry, you you won't ever be allowed to come to our gathering? Um, but they do, and they eventually send him from the church in Antioch, and, mm. um, and amazing things happen in the outcome and the aftermath. I'm better at obedience than encouragement, but I do I do find Barnabas remarkable, just like the lady that wrote to Jeffrey Dahmer. I thought I would love to to have that kind of want to grow the kingdom, you know, mm. to be able to include everyone like that. Yeah, yeah, it's a fabulous you know characteristic For which sure. we should all aspire to. All right. Well, that's the end of the questions I have. But I think the thing that I'm going to take away mostly from today is not to diminish my sin and not to diminish God's grace. Is there anything you would like to add? No, I think that's a great spot to finish up. In that case, we'll pray for you next week while you're away at Oxygen. We hope you have a wonderful time. Thank you. And for everybody listening, please send me some questions. I'd love love a little bit of help each week. (laughs) Thanks for listening. This has been a Wollongong Baptist Church podcast. You can listen to past sermons and deeper podcasts and also find information about our Sunday services at our website, wollongongbaptist.org.